podcast is part of the Pod Syndicate family. For more criminally compelling shows, articles, and conversations, head to wearepodsyndicate.com. You're listening to an archive episode of the Adventures in VHS podcast, recorded back before the Adventures in VHS book was finally published in 2016. The book is an authentic recreation of the video rental experience, exploring 60 different bizarre and wonderful VHS movies in fun, anecdotal detail. It also features full-colour reproductions of each film's glorious artwork to make it feel like you're browsing the shelves of a dusty old video store, and has a foreword from the one and only Lloyd Kaufman. So, if you like what you hear in this podcast, why not treat yourself to a copy of the ebook for just £3.99 by visiting noelmeller.com. desperate band of nuclear survivors stumble upon shelter where they seek protection from deadly radioactive rain. But the stuff is upstairs, bro, from the radiation. I mean, we got it made here. But their dreams of safety turn into a nightmare of horror when they are confronted by the Creepazoids. <laughs> Creepazoids. Even if you kill them, they're still deadly. Creepazoids. Okay, so 1987's Creepazoids was directed by David Dakota, and according to an interview with the director conducted some time ago from what I can gather, uh, it was shot in around 15 days. Uh, some sources have suggested that it was actually made in around 12. Um, it was filmed in an abandoned warehouse in Los Angeles at a cost of, again, according to the director, $150,000. Um, although some other other sources actually suggest that it was around 75. Um, just to put that into context for you, um, in 1975, over a decade earlier, David Cronenberg made Shivers in about the same length of time for for around 28 grand more. Now, obviously, I think maybe Shivers is a little bit more of a cinematic movie, but you know, this this is a movie that really wants to go out there and show you some special effects. I think mainly because of the the nature of film uh, uh, back in the 1980s and really uh, movie makers having an eye on the VHS market. I would presume I'll I'll find out a little bit more when I speak to uh, David Dakota himself. Um, the director did also say that he he did have ambitions for the special effects, and he said some of the monster sequences, um, certainly in this interview that I've that I've read, some of the mon- monster sequences that he had to produce for the movie made it quite a difficult shoot. Uh, it's also important to remember that this was his first feature that was shot on 35 millimeter film. Uh, the film was distributed theatrically in October 1987. However, it really found its audience on home rental VHS. Um, it was put out by a, a few different companies, uh, including Titan Productions, Beyond Infinity, Urban Classics, and Charles Band's infamous Empire Theatres, which he would later sell off to set up Full Moon Pictures, which is still going in, 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 in still going strong. Um, Urban Classics is an interesting one just to pick out very quickly, though, at this point. Um, 
it had a short lifespan in the the late 1980s and just put out six movies from what I can gather. Uh, just to go through them as a little bit of a guide, uh, it's quite easy to see the kind of trauma-esque sleaziness that, that this particular uh, production company had in mind. They put out Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity in 1987, which we'll hear a little bit more about when we get to the trailer discussion for Creepazoids. Uh, and, and in addition to Creepazoids and Slave Girls, they also put out Assault of the Killer Bimbos, Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bolarama, and Galactic Gigolo, all in 1988. And there was another movie that they put out in 1989 uh, called The Occultist. So, uh, yeah, quite a short-lived um, production company from what I can tell, but uh, certainly an interesting one just going on those uh, going on those titles alone. And I've already made, made note of a couple of those titles uh, because there'll be films I'll be checking out very soon, so I expect to hear about them. Um, going back to Creepsides, though, it stars Liana, uh, Linnea Quigley as Bianca, who is obviously a pretty well-known name to many genre fans. She's starred in a whole host of horror and cult features, uh, including quite a few with director David Dakota. Um, not only did they do Creepsides and Sorority Babes in the Slimeball Bo- slime Bolarama together, uh, they later went on to do Nightmare Sisters in 1988, American Rampage in 1989. Uh, she also had a small part in Doctor Alien in 1989 as well. Um, and most recently in 2012 he's worked with her on 1313 Cougar Cult Um, to name just three of her perhaps slightly better known appearances for those who can't quite picture her she is the rapey sister of Linda Blair in the fantastic rape revenge thriller Savage Streets she's the braless teen that ends up skewered on some antlers in Silent Night, Deadly Night and of course, yes, she's the the naked, pink haired grave dancing wet dream from Return of the Living Dead. So, if you couldn't picture her before, I'm sure with those three examples, you can now. You're welcome. Uh, Anyway, uh, the rest of the cast is a little bit less famous and probably a little bit less familiar as well. Uh, There's Ken Abram, who plays characters called Butch. Uh, His career is is mainly made up of TV appearances, according to his IMDb page, and he's now actually an editor on Jersey Shore, which is a strange transition. Um, There's Michael Aranda as Jesse, who's kind of worked very sporadically since back in 87 when this was released. Uh, Similarly, there's Richard L. Hawkins as Jake, who uh, actually only has one more movie credit since this was put out. Uh, And then finally, there's Ashlyn Gear as Kate, uh, who's had a much more prolific career uh, with pivotal roles in films like Sorority Sex Kittens 3 and Whack Attack 5 as well as the 12th installment of the presumably popular Cocksmokers franchise. Um, back to Creepazoids, though. This film itself is set in the super-futuristic year of 1998 and could very easily and accurately be described as a sci-fi horror. Um, it has been mentioned by many as a kind of Aliens rip-off, and while there are sort of one or two scenes you'd expect to see a chestburster pop up, and while there are some similarities, similarities you could draw from the actual Creepazoid itself, I think it's a bit harsh, really. I think, you know, there's a lot of movies that could be described as alien rip-offs if we're going to say that this is one, so uh, I'll leave it there. Anyway, as we all know, VHS sleeves don't lie. So for uh, a proper synopsis of the movie itself, I'm going to take a look at the blurb on the reverse of the sleeve. Colourbox proudly introduced to the UK, Creepazoids. A desperate band of nuclear survivors stumble into a disused shelter seeking refuge from the deadly acid rain. 
but any dreams of safety are soon shattered as it becomes apparent that the shelter is not unoccupied. They may be safe from the dangers outside, but they are far from safe from the horror within. Recoil in horror at the sight of the creepazoids. Shrink in fear as bodies melt from the inside. Shake with terror at the birth of the creepazoid baby. Thrill as Ultra Slime makes its first ever appearance. Boggle at the special effects. That's fantastic. I, 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 you know, the blurb is, is brilliant, but the, the four points that, that creep in after there, recoil in horror, everybody wants to recoil in horror every now and again, shrink in fear, movies are made of that type of thing, shake with terror, that's actually a physical reaction, as if shrinking and recoiling wasn't, thrill as ultra slime makes its first ever appearance. Now, I can't quantify that. I don't know if Ultra Slime appeared in any other movies before this. But by God, I'll be finding out when I speak to the director. And finally, Boggle at the special effects. I've seen this movie now. I'm pretty sure I boggled. So that's that's a fair summarization, I think, of Creepazoids. So yeah, that's Creepazoids The Sleeve. Just to describe a little bit about what I've purchased here... What I have here is a X-Rental VHS copy of Creepazoids, presumably from 1987. Um, it is, of course, BBFC Certified 18. The front cover has a wonderful big lettering across the top, Creepazoids, move over aliens, here come the Creepazoids. They, we've, got like a, a, we've got like a long corridor, and then creeping out of a hatch, we have an incredibly detailed and incredibly beautiful hand-painted monster with an elongated head, spiked arms, veiny wrists, big claws. Uh, it's dragging itself out of a box filled out of a hole filled with light. Yes, it's got massive protruding teeth and enormous weird incisors that stick out from its cheek. Um this is a beautifully hand-painted alien on a beautifully hand-painted background however there's an extra little feature in there and that's a weird sort of odd creepazoid baby with a similarly shaped head that's creeping out into the foreground it's it's a beautifully rendered box i have to say um and then just below that we've got the uh the extra tagline even if you kill them they're still deadly now that's going to stoke curiosity in anybody that comes across this in a, in a rental shop, I would imagine. Um, the movie's put out, in this case, by Colourbox. Um, the side of the sleeve is much the same. The back of the sleeve we've already mentioned um, in terms of the blurb. But in terms of the pictures, we've got Linnea Quigley at the top looking kind of sexy in a lovely little vest and clutching a miniature Uzi submachine gun, what it is what it certainly looks like. Uh, the next picture down, we've got that weird alien baby, um, which I have to say looks a lot like the baby from It's Alive. Um, the next picture down, we've got what I think is, yes it is, um, that's uh, Linnea Quigley's arse. Um, nice scene there of her in the shower with somebody covered in soap so that's uh, one for the dads um, then the next shot down we've got one of the aliens in silhouette so we can't quite see the details as it appears to be toothing its way through somebody's neck uh, there's a decaying body and then another picture of a body decaying on a gurney as two people recoil in horror uh, because, as we've kind of covered already, you will recoil in horror when you catch sight of the creepazoids. Um, so that's the cover. 
and that's a little bit about what the movie is uh, is all about. So after this short break, I think we'll get into the trailers and the review section. Okay, so that was the Colorbox video logo that you heard there, and now we're going to move straight on into the trailers for this particular section. I'm just going to watch them with you uh, and and let you know a little bit about what's going on on the screen as you hear the audio. Uh, Film Mirage presents, and I have no idea what this is at this point, um, Guy Walking across the street and whoa look out for the bus uh, yes he's just got smashed by a bus and then we're into fast cut action sequences a uh, young girl creeping around a creepy house door opens I guess she's about to be attacked by something and the big reveal is the movie is Ghost House uh, the only thing I can tell you about the movie Ghost House is that I remember the actual cover for it um, the cover as I recall is a young girl walking away from what's a creepy looking house um, and she's kind of possessed looking her eyes are white and she's carrying like a big uh, ventriloquist doll or something like that I've just had a quick flash of the ventriloquist doll which appears to be carrying an axe and has the ability to carry people that it's murdered um, and yeah it looks like there's a nice big slice of death in this one um, looks to be a final girl as well I'm guessing you can probably hear this uh, conversation now yeah, I'm not entirely sure if it's a haunted house situation or if there's a possession element to this, but it certainly looks passable enough. I don't know how great it'd be to actually sit through. This looks like a classic example of a better cover than a better movie. Um, the effects on the, uh, the doll there were, were pretty shocking. It was quite clear that it was a it was a doll, but with a man's arms sort of stuck through. Uh, just to, to make it look a little bit more real and effective. Um, it's strange, this one, because there's no voiceover. It, it just... It's music and, and what's going on in the movie itself, and then occasionally you just get blasted up on the screen in front of you, Ghost House. There's no real clue as to what the actual plot is. There's no mention of who the actors are. Not that I'm sure that that's not very important, but it, it doesn't really seem to give you much to go on apart from, yes, there's plenty of violence, but hey, this is the late 1980s, we're talking about VHS rentals, that's probably all you're interested in. Um, again, going back to the final girl situation, it looks like there's a main girl in it who does an awful lot of killing. It's directed by a guy called Humphrey Herbert, which I think is fantastic. There's a, dis- there's a disembodied head in a tumble dryer. Um, so... All things considered, Ghost House at this point, if I was watching this at the age of eight years old, um, this particular trailer, I might ask my dad to rent that. Uh, yeah, so we blast through and we're on to coming soon now. In the what distant have we next? It's like a lady in chains. Helpless against the yeah, it's a very sexy lady in chains. Very sexy lady in chains. She's trying to break out of the chains. I hope she does. She is. She's free. They want revenge. 
And she's taking on all the guys. It looks like she is one of a number of savage women who are imprisoned in a futuristic society uh, where women don't wear very much, which aren't all the best futuristic societies like that. Uh, this is a sci-fi adventure. Uh, this is a sci-fi adventure with very big ships and big aliens and very big tits and dude that looks like Billy Warlock. Um, a couple of monsters that look a little bit like those thingies from Battlestar Galactica. And yeah, lots of sex and spaceships. This woman looks incredible. Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Uh, an Urban Classics release from 1987. I'll be putting that on my to-watch list. But they could cost you your life. This looks very promising. This looks an awful lot of fun. There's laser guns, there's aliens, there's half-naked chicks. Yeah, this looks like a this looks like something I want to watch. Slave girls. From beyond infinity. And then, quite strangely, we get a message on the screen saying, please phone to, to reserve a copy with your dealer. Was I really supposed to phone up my VHS dealer and say, please put aside for me a copy of Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity? What a bizarre request for a VHS tape to make of me. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what so-called family films will scar your kids forever? Putting four or five-year-olds in front of this movie, it's like, if they didn't know what death was before this, they're going to know it after it. They're going to know it after it, and they're going to be freaking terrified. And they're going to be questioning you. Yeah. Or do you have the slight suspicion that your loved one has a cold, dead heart? Yeah, The Dark Knight has got like, all the orphans, and like, oh no, we're going to die. They did not build up those orphans at all. In my head, it's like, kill them. Then look no further, the His Film Her Movie podcast is the show for you. It's the movie podcast that celebrates the contrasting cinematic tastes of its hosts. So join Jordan and Lauren every week on their unique journey through the land of the silver screen. So if you're looking for a few laughs, some fun film related chat, then get involved. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. CS3P Combat! Player one, choose your character. Tired of film and television podcasts where the hosts exist in a blissful state of agreement? Player two, choose your character. While you're in luck. Punter. Round one, fight. Allow me to introduce you to the Chinstroker vs. Punter podcast, featuring two film and television fans from Birmingham, England, who enjoy their media in very different ways. <laughs> But anyway, that brings us to the end of the plot of Blue Velvet. The plot. I mean, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. <laughs> so join us as we catch up on what we've been watching from our own very different perspectives. Double KO. Round two. Fight. You can find us at csvsp.libson.com. Also on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the places that podcasts can be found. Just really It's isn't. not visually striking. No. I just just getting confirmation. It's just in English. That's the third time, though. I mean, am I, is this on? What are you doing? Standing guard. No, you're not. 90% of household accidents happen in the bath. I'm standing guard.
No, you're not. I'm not? No. You're going to come and soak my backside. What's the matter? Can't you handle it? I can handle anything. Well, then look alive, soldier. So, as we've already established through the very helpful blurb on the sleeve, Creepzoids is uh, a cautionary tale about a post-apocalyptic future in which acid rain is supposedly one of the biggest threats uh, to what is left of mankind. Now, for those of you a little younger than I, I should probably explain just a little about the term acid rain and how important it is to the context of the movie. Uh, acid rain is one of those genu- genuine sort of environmental concerns that comes up now again, now and again, and drives whole generations into unruly panic. And in the 80s, it seemed genuinely likely that we were moving towards a future where standing out in the drizzle would would result in in something that looked like a scene from street trash. Now, as I say, it was a real concern involving pollution, pollution in the air that was affecting pH levels and causing subsequent harm to rivers and vegetation but like say mad cow disease or avian flu it was often kind of amplified for dramatic effect to to a level that was a bit on the silly side Uh, like it is here or in Frank Cross's trailer for the IBC Christmas schedule in Scrooged there's a little flick of it there as well Um, so you know bearing that in mind it'll be kind of interesting to see how Birdemic is looked at in, in years to come. I mean, I know that's a, that's a film with its tongue firmly in its cheek. Um, but, you know, we look back on these sort of scares and see them for what they really are, and, and it's quite interesting to see that played out in, in Creepazoids. Uh, at one point, the question is actually asked, do you two want to go out and fry in the rain? And it, it's, you know, that really, as much as this is kind of a disposable film... I think there was a genuine sense that if we all didn't start behaving ourselves that we would, you know, move towards a future where rain could genuinely burn us, uh, which is, is crazy in hindsight. But um, a lot of things were in the 80s. Hole in the ozone layer, what happened to that? Who knows? Anyway, the acid rain thing is threatening this band of renegades who are on the run from the authorities. Um and they discover a used warehouse-type bunker-type thing where they decide to hide out. Unfortunately, there's an evil in there that starts to pick them off one by one. So the plot setup is pretty minimal. Uh, it, can, it does consist of a, a sort of pre-credit sequence where we see a female scientist who's attacked by a creation that's sort of hanging about outside her laboratory door. Uh, it's assumedly it's it's a creation of the company that that she's working for it's not really 100 percent clear um and then you know there's a scream the screen goes black and we're into sort of a, a, a dos style prologue which is a text explanation of of how 1988 is in such a, a shite state of affairs at this point i have to say big props to guy moon for the credits music it's really fantastic and, and gets things off to a cracking start um, as well as Linnea Quigley's vest shirt, which also promises to be on the floor at some point. So, it, you know, things do kick off quite well. Um, there really, overall, isn't much to spoil in terms of story. The gang wander around trying to figure out what's going on. Um, they infiltrate the computer systems to see what clues they can pick up on what actually happened here and why this place is so desolate. Um, and then one of them gets picked off. It becomes clear that 
there's a beast and and he's infected this person who's been been picked off they start to get killed um and at the end of the whole shebang there's one of them who is left who has to take down the creepazoid itself the big uh, big alien thing or big mutant thing i should say and also deal with its infant offspring which which crawls out of its body and and begins to attack so yeah, as far as reviewing the film is concerned, I think, you know, you need to know what you're getting into with this type of movie, and if, if you're into this type of thing, you'll get you'll probably get on board with it. The first act has some particularly charming moments, I must say. Uh, as I say, the credit sequence where, where you've got this fantastic music, um, and uh, and also the the gang sort of creeping into the warehouse and looking about, that's, that's, that's excellent. Um... And it also leads to some of the most bizarre language from the gang's kind of fearless leader, Jake, that I think I've ever heard. Jake seems to sort of inappropriately replace verbs with slang words that are usually associated with sex, which sounds odd. But if you don't believe me, check this out. At one point, he says, Yeah, well, we're going to fucking find out. Now let's hump it. And then a little bit later on, he says... Let's shag it. Brilliantly, he also brings up a phrase that has stuck with me for some time throughout my life since I first came across it in the, wait for it, novelization of Lethal Weapon. Honestly, I don't know why, but for some reason when I was a kid, I read the novelization of Lethal Weapon a good few times. And I always remember one particular line where I think Riggs is stood at a urinal having a piss and he's thinking to himself about how many times he should shake his dick afterwards. Hey, come on, more than three shakes and you're whacking it! Anyway, shortly after these uh, these sequences that we get our first alien-esque sitting around the table eating scene, um, before Linnea Quigley finally decides that she's had enough and steps out to take a shower and get naked... One of her co-stars, Butch, decides to follow her. He's, you know, concerned, in inverted commas, about her safety. And he knows she's going for a shower and he should be looking out for her. She says to him, you know, you're not going to stand there and guard me. And he's like, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. And he's like, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. And he's like, I am. And she's like, no, you're not. And then eventually, after this back and forth has gone on for some time she says you're going to get in the shower with me and at which point he's like oh great uh, you know as if he was surprised that that's that's what was coming um so they get into the shower and they soap each other up and it's you know you get a full frontal shot of of some boobies as well which is is lovely and and frankly you'd kind of expect that so that's great um and it is the boob moment shower sequence that you see on the back of the sleeve um, and it's a nice little throw in, nice little thing to throw in there for the dads who are watching, uh, in case any of them feel like shaking their dicks more than three times later on during a special second viewing when everybody else has gone to bed. So um, yeah, another interesting moment that I picked up on is is when you get the sort of resident nerd Jesse, who's kind of getting to grips with the biochem company's computer system, and he brings up an interesting list of employees. Uh, on the on the system, one of which is uh, Roger Corman, but there's also on there you've also got Forrest Ackerman, uh, Chuck Band, uh, obviously that's Charles Band, and David McCabe, which is actually one of the pseudonyms of the director David Dakota. Um, the actual death scenes uh, a little bit hit and miss, but are entertaining enough. 
It's obvious that a lot of love and attention went into creating the actual Creepazoid itself. Uh, strangely, though, there is a second threat that runs through the movie that's almost as deadly uh, running through the corridors of the bunker as, as the Creepazoid, and that's giant post-apocalyptic rats. Um, now, these things just seem to pop up out of nowhere and, and go for people's throats, as you, as you would expect, I suppose, but they're... They're lovely big rats that kind of attack people and people get to roll around with them at their neck in, in a sort of comic horror fashion. And it's it's quite lovely. It's never really clear if these giant rats have anything to do with the monster or if they've just been thrown in there for good measure. My assumption is that they're somehow part of... I, they Maybe they were lab rats that got caught up in this or they they ate the wrong thing. Because there is a sort of... There's, there's kind of reference at one point through... Uh, the computer system to, you know, um, employees drinking something or eating something that may have had an effect on them. It's a little unclear, uh, but it's it's you know, as as the director himself has said, the point of this movie was not to sort of get bogged down in anything other than um, you know showing people the creepersides because that's what people pay their money for and that's what people want to see. And by God, you do see them later on, or him later on, or it later on. Um, so as far as, I mean, you know, that's the movie in a nutshell. In terms of reviewing it, I would say it's an enjoyable it's an enjoyable enough watch. It has some great little features. It's very charming. It's very much of its time. Um, if you're, as I say, if you're into this type of thing, as I am, and you can get enjoyment from this type of thing, I, I really think you'll get some kicks out of it. Um, the first act is probably the strongest, uh, then there's some great stuff in the middle involving the giant rats and stuff, and then obviously there's the big reveal of the the creepazoid itself in full, uh, and then there's a bit of a battle with that. Um, my only problem is, is towards the end it, it feels a little bit under underdeveloped towards the end because once the the creepazoid is um, spoiler alert killed. <clears throat> you get this sort of infant that crawls out of its body, and then you've got a grown man and a a weird prosthetic baby kind of stalking each other in an empty storeroom for about 20 minutes. So that just feels a bit weird. So, um, yeah, I mean, that said, and I suppose this is a major spoiler, the moment where he actually grabs hold of the baby and chokes it to death with its own umbilical cord is actually pretty amazing. And I have to say, watching it made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. As clear as it is that this is a prosthetic demon... demon mutant baby um, you are watching an infant life being extinguished before your eyes so when the baby's eyes are rolling about and it's being strangled by this umbil- umbilical cord it does feel oddly uncomfortable um, but I'm all for feeling uncomfortable during a movie so um, yeah, um, a round of applause for that uh, so Creepazoids, yeah, it's ambitious, it's fun, it has comical dialogue, it has loads of goo and monsters, it has a couple of giant bloodthirsty rats, and it has a lovely pair of titties. Uh, so, how could I complain about any of that? This is ours. We stay here because we found it. Now, I say we kill anything that tries to push us out. Search and destroy. You're damn right. I'm not sure we're up to it, Jake. Okay, so moving on to the final section of the show, we've talked a little bit about Creepazoids, uh, the movie itself, and of course the glorious VHS release that came with it. Uh, And I'm delighted to say I'm actually now joined by the director himself, uh, David Dakota. Uh, Hi. 
Hello, how are you? Fantastic. Thanks very much for joining me today. And uh, you very kindly agreed to answer a few questions um, about the movie itself. Uh, so just at this point, the, the first question I wanted to ask you was, there seems to be a little bit of different information out there about how long the film took to make uh, and how much it cost. So I was wondering, could you sh shed a little light on that? How is it? How, how do you remember it um, in terms of how long it took and, and how much it cost? Uh, it was uh, shot, we shot the film in Los Angeles um, uh, in 1987. I think March or April or May of 1987 in Los Angeles. The shooting schedule was 12 days of principal photography uh, and three additional days of uh, monster uh, photography because we had a, a lot of creepazoids in there, and they. Uh, I decided to do a completely separate shoot that just worked primarily with the uh, with the creatures. So it was a total of about uh, fifteen days of shooting, and uh, the budget. I can't really remember what the budget was, even though I co-produced the film. But I remember you know, we had to shoot the movie in thirty-five millimeter. This is prior to any sort of digital technology, mm. <clears throat> and we also had to complete the film on motion picture film and make release prints because the film was released theatrically in the United States. So yeah. and I remember when we, um, the VHS came out in the U.S. under the title Creepazoids with the, um, uh, with the, with the art that was pretty cool. But I yeah. do remember meeting the UK distributors, which if I can, I think I remember their names. I, um, uh, what was his name? Richard, uh, Richard Sales, and he had a company that was releasing DV, uh, VHSs through, uh, through I think, a label deal with Polygram. Okay. And so it came out on VHS in the United Kingdom through Polygram on a label called, oh, it was so long ago. Yeah. Um, but I remember their key art was better than the U.S. key art. As a matter of fact, it was so great that um, uh, my uh, dear friend Fred Olin Ray, who was also friendly with um, uh, Richard Sales at that uh, distribution company in uh, the United Kingdom, uh, he borrowed the art and used the art for the U.S. release of a movie very similar to it called Hybrid uh, that Fred did. So that's how, uh, how much uh, we liked the artwork. The artwork from the, for the U.K. release was sensational. So, um, uh, but um, it... Uh, the film, I think, uh, the final running time for the film uh, for Creepazoids was about seventy-two minutes. Yeah, and then it um, uh, and it got uh, it got through our rating system with an R rating. Um, there was no cuts uh, made, um, but uh, the uh, uh, but I remember it doing very well, and I remember seeing their ad campaign for it, and it, they they wanted some bullet points for their promotion in the UK for the release. Of Creepazoids on VHS, and uh, we had used, um, this is back before, as I said, before digital technology, so there was no CGI or anything like that. Everything that you saw in the movie was, we did live on the set, you know, it was like we shot it, except for maybe a stock shot of some clouds or something, but for the most part, I shot everything. Uh, and uh, so we, we covered the monsters with ultra slime, and uh, which was a new uh, product that a lot of the makeup effects companies were using here in Los Angeles. And um, uh, so they, the, the, our, the, our British uh, distributor said that's a great thing. The first movie uh, that uses ultra slime. So it was kind of a, a funny, a funny thing. But I think it did very well in the United Kingdom. 
Uh, but this was in 87 when there was a lot of video shops everywhere. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, uh, and there was, it was not a very crowded market. I mean, people really liked horror films. They certainly liked them worldwide, and I remember it doing really well in the United Kingdom. Yeah. So, I mean, is that, is that you, would you say sort of the VHS market and the sort of rental explosion, was that something that helped you as a filmmaker back then, or, or was it something that had some, some issues that came with it? Oh, no, it, 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 the, the video, the VHS revolution invented me. I mean, it, it, I, would not have been, I would have not become a director if it wasn't for VHS. Right. I mean, uh, Hollywood is a hermetically sealed industry. Yeah. And um, uh, to be able to find a, a, a crack in the very, very uh, uh, sturdy uh, uh, wall of uh, getting in this business was very tough. But VHS, which is what I call my, my, my three favorite letters in the world are VHS <laughs> because um, uh, it, it, it exploded and they needed more movies than they could possibly, uh, uh, than we could possibly make. So, um, it was the easiest time to make films because it was an actual market for the films. It wasn't yeah. a crowded market and there was VHS machines suddenly, you know, uh, uh purchased throughout the, the, the planet and everybody needed movies. So we made as many as we could. And, um, it just seemed like English language films produced in Hollywood with a certain sort of um, professionalism to them seemed to be able to, you know, translate to internationally. And yeah. uh, um, it was a real business back then. I kind of miss it, actually, because it was uh, easier, you know. Um, these things uh, in the United States were going for $69, 80, $79, $89, yeah. you know. And we had 30,000 video shops here in the United States then. So uh, it's, a, it's a big, it's a, it's, a, it's a much different marketplace now. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things we, t- we talk about on this show, and, and I'll be talking about a lot in, in Adventures in VHS, the book, um, is the, the artwork that goes along uh, with the releases. And as you say, uh, it had quite different art in the U.S., than it had over here in the UK, and and I think actually both were quite quite impressive pieces of art. Um, I was just wondering when you're actually making the film, how aware of you, how aware are you of the you know the artistic uh, stuff that's going to go along with the the product? Does it does it inform the filmmaking process, or are they taking sketches while the filmmaking process is going on, or does that happen way way down the line? Oh, well, sometimes the director and the producer are the last people to know how a film is going to look. Uh, I mean, I've, uh, or how a poster is going to look, um, or a key, what they call key art, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we're sometimes the last to know, especially on back in the 80s when there was a lot, and the 70s when there was a lot of, a lot of artist renderings done. They weren't yeah. using photo, photorealism uh, uh, um, uh, original images they were used they were creating sure. key art painted, you know yeah. a painter actually yeah. painted those things dealing with me as a filmmaker let, let alone did they need to have me uh, uh, give them, give it my two cents on uh, what I thought of their poster that was their expertise and they they moved along now, but, but my relationship with Charles Band who financed that film and I went on to make about 30 more movies for him as a director um, he would always that was the most fun to him. I mean, um, he, he making the poster was everything. to him. Hmm. Um, so he loved it. I mean, obviously the movie was important and everything, but he just loved selling movies and he loved, he's a, he's a, an art collector as well. And, uh, so he loved doing that. So there were many artists, uh, doing all kinds of uh, renderings and pencil sketches. And I think he used an Italian artist for a while, 
to create some of the art. But I, I never saw any particular artist with a brush in his hand actually painting uh, the key art for any of my films. But uh, all I would know is I would show up at the, um, the company's office and there would be uh, a poster with my name on it on a movie I directed. And it was, uh, uh, it was great to see back then. It was still uh, you know, an exciting time to see your film sold to the world. And it was very cool. Excellent. Well, I mean, you spoke a little bit about the um, about what it was like to make a film back then, but when it came down to the actual filming of it, what kind of what kind of challenges do you have, and what kind of memories do you have about the sort of time and budgetary con- constraint? Because it obviously, you know, as you say, you were trying to get this film out to to, to fill fill a need. Uh, what kind of constraints did you sort of face in that? Um, well, I mean, uh, it was my I was twenty five years twenty five years old when I directed that film. I was very young. Um, I was very new to the business. I'd only directed one film prior to that, one mainstream movie prior to that, a film called Dream Maniac that, uh, that Charles Ben co-financed. And it was a very lackluster movie that did not really perform that well in the, in, in the market. But, but Charlie did like me, and he did want to give me another shot, and uh, he wanted me to, you know, to shoot in 35mm. And so I pitched him a number of... Uh, Storylines, one of which was a title called Mutant Spawn 2000, which was a knockoff of Aliens, which is what was kind of uh, popular at the time. And I also pitched him a little creature movie because he had just made a film. Well, he'd not, I think he had just released Ghoulies 2, and he always did well with little creature movies, so I thought Creepazoids would be interesting. And Creepazoids is a riff on on the um, Midnight Star song uh, Freakazoids. Um, oh. And uh, Creepazoids just sort of popped up in my head one day walking to... Uh, the office, and I thought, hmm, and so I pitched it. He liked the title Creepazoids, but he put it on the Aliens knockoff. So the concept was is the Creepazoids were a number of creatures, and we had to deliver giant killer rats, we had to deliver a big uh, killer uh, monster, we had to deliver zombies, We had, and then at the very end, we had a, a killer mutant baby, and I'd always liked those It's Alive movies that Larry Cohen made, so I wanted to do a killer baby movie. But to find people that could actually pull off these effects for the low budget that I had was not too challenging because, you know, I had been in the in business with a number of people and I had stumbled, if I'm not mistaken, I had John Beekler's shop. John Beekler was doing all of the effects for Charles Band's what would be called A movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was sort of the B-level unit at the company. Um, and so I talked to a few of his guys. A few of his guys had left his company, had left uh, Beekler's, and started their own shop, a company called Next Generation Effects. It was Tom Flouts and a guy named Peter Persilla. And I explained to them, I said, look, um, I'm doing this movie. Um, uh, I need wall-to-wall monsters, and I really wanted to let her. Uh, for Charlie now, because he's given me a second shot, and I didn't think he would after the first uh, experiment, Dreamania. And so it was really, um, they, they, they said they'll do it, they'll do it for the price, they just needed some time. So it took about two months, and they called in a lot of favors. Uh, John Criswell, who was a mechanical effects genius working in the business, came in to help out Tom and Peter. And it was a very tough shoot um, in that, um, uh, I had, uh, had a, I brought on a new director of photography who I had worked with before. Um, I had to find the right kind of location uh, that I could uh, basically own and sling a lot of slime and blood around without getting uh, too much uh, 
uh, into, into too much trouble. And I found a little warehouse studio on Washington Boulevard in Los Angeles that was um, uh, the old photo studio for British uh, porn still photographer Suze Randall. Right. And she had been shooting stills for Hustler and Penthouse and had done some movies. Suze Randall, British woman. And she had just left and left this studio available. And I saw uh, an ad as I was driving down the street, a listing saying, you know, available for rent. And I talked to the owner and um, he said um, uh, that um, it was available. It was only 1,200 square feet. And so I had been working with a young man who was a very uh, sweet, um, uh, very uh, enthusiastic and innovative uh, production designer, art director, who seemed to be able to create a lot out of nothing for no money. And I said, look, if we turned um, each wall of this studio into a set, I could just put the camera in the middle of the studio and just kind of you know, pan left, and we shoot a scene, pan left again onto another set, and as I'm shooting off of the sets, you can build and redress the same sets. Mm -hmm. There's some time, there's some shots in that movie where people are walking through a doorway, and then the cuts to them walking into the room, it's the same doorway, just looking at it a different angle. I was constantly, you know, trying to, because I felt that I, when somebody wants to see a movie called Creepazoids, they want to see creepazoids. Yeah. And so uh, they don't necessarily care about, um, or it's not a priority to be, how should we say, uh, the, the um, architecture uh, for which the creepazoids perform their deadly deeds and yeah. is not as important for the creepazoids themselves. So sure. I found this very inexpensive studio, rented it for two months. We started building the sets and started making the monsters and, um, um, uh, we ran into a problem. I, uh, uh, Charlie called me and says, Dave, can you delay production one month? And uh, Which is usually, when you get that call, it's usually uh, not good. Yeah. Uh, because you have everything set up to go. But actually, <clears throat> actually, it was a blessing in disguise because I was able to go back to the special effects guys who were working day and night. I said, guys, <clears throat> not only do you have an extra month to create all the creepazoids, but I'm going to give you more money. So it was a, kind of a blessing in disguise. We delayed a month. Charlie gave us some extra money. And we spent so little anyways. And uh, day one of shooting, um, it worked out uh, like gangbusters. I called in my old friend, Linnea Quigley, who I had worked with on a short film many years ago, but prior to that, and had subsequently uh, was uh, became one of the stars of Return of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Brought her in, and uh, an actor, another actress named Kim McCamey, and a bunch of young men. And uh, we start shooting the movie. And I tell you, it was um, you know I brought I brought in a lot of favorites. You know, I brought in a lot of fans, and mm-hmm. friends, and stuff. So it was it was it was great. It worked out really great. So it was very uh, just shooting those creepazoids and making them look good was the tough part. Sure. So, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, um, how VHS changed things. And, and obviously things have changed a great deal um, since back in 1987. We've now got DVD, Blu-ray, pay-per-view, and, and of course online streaming. I was just wondering how has that changed your approach uh, to, to getting films made and getting films out there? Well, 
I mean, the internet and uh, digital technology has been a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the 80s, there was really only about a half a dozen of us filmmakers in the Los Angeles area that were either in pre-production, production, or post-production on a film on a consistent basis. Um, we literally got pretty much all of our films greenlit that we would pitch. We all had a very commercial sort of streak in us, so we weren't exactly asking to do Winter of My Despondency. We were asking to do, hey, let's do an action movie, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, with car chases and explosions mm-hmm. and monsters and naked women. And so that was an easier pitch, and so we, we worked all the time. And uh, a number of us, uh, uh, contemporaries such as Fred Olin Ray or Jim Minorsky, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and our and our and our and our idol Roger Corman and um, a company called Action International Pictures David Pryor uh, that was directing films for my friend David Winters. Um, we were maybe there was a handful of other people that there was some one-off productions happening here and there, but we were the ones who were consistently making the films because, like I said, it was a hermetically sealed industry. Once you got past the velvet rope and you didn't fuck up too much, you worked all the time. Digital technology did change everything. Um, it became, uh, filmmaking became much more democratized. Suddenly, anybody could do it. And um, uh, and I thought that was, that, that was great, because it, the, the equipment became less cumbersome. You didn't need to shoot on film. And it took a while for the cameras to sort of come up to broadcast standards worldwide. But uh, once they did... Pretty much everybody got in it, and uh, that wanted to be a filmmaker, and so it became extremely competitive, and uh, and it, so. But it, but but now, for example, the films I'm doing now through my company Rapid Heart Pictures, mm-hmm. which is uh, which I launched in 1999, right after my 30 years as a director with Charles Band, uh, and and my 30 films as a director with Charles Band, yeah. as well as everybody else. Um, uh, uh, I kind of I started by shooting a thirty five millimeter and and I've done forty films since then and I own my own company I own my own films I distribute my own films now or I have a lot of distribution partners worldwide uh, and my films are now everywhere they're on every single platform uh, in North America including satellite uh, cable television uh, iTunes etc etc and as does uh, internet and digital tech <coughs> digital distribution catch on elsewhere. The films are selling elsewhere. So, um, but you know, it's uh, there's some heavy competition. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the uh, back in the day, like I said, you could get a buy a, a VHS was seventy bucks. Now a DVD is uh, as low as a dollar some places. So it's the the the, the 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 arithmetic is different. And luckily, I'm not afraid to work. I'm not afraid to uh, be prolific. I'm not afraid to change uh, my way of working to uh, accommodate the marketplace. Uh, and uh, to continue doing what I'm doing. So um, uh, I've never worked harder for less money in my life, uh, but uh, I'm still in the game. I really enjoy being in the business. I directed 12 features last year alone. I've directed six so far this year. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, you know, I have no complaints. I've directed movies all over the world and, uh, and continue to do so. Um, so, but I, you know, I do have a fondness for the 80s just because, 
it was a great time. And uh, a VHS uh, video shop was uh, a little church for me. You know what I'm saying? You'd go in, you'd find some title that you'd only heard about in a reference book, and there it was, sort Absolutely. of glowing on that shelf. And he just said, oh, my God, I found you. Um, and you would rent it for a few bucks or whatever it was, and you got to see something you probably had been looking for for years or you had only heard about, and here you go, VHS made it so, you know, uh, it was magical. It was a great yeah. time. Right? It was just amazing, amazing film. Classic Hollywood movies were coming out finally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I come from an era of three TV channels. You know, um, and uh, and movie theaters. I, I were maybe once in a while you'd see a, a short eight millimeter version of a film. You know, but for the most part, it was appointment viewing. Yeah. You only heard about these. So VHS made everything so much more accessible. Um, and uh, it was great. I mean, I, I do, I do get nostalgic thinking about those days. Also, the money was great, so I miss the money too. But um, uh, but it, it was a great time. It was an incredible time. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, I can certainly agree with you, and I know an awful lot of the people listening to this podcast will certainly agree with you about that. Um, as we as we mentioned, though, you know, you, you, you're still very active, and you seem to have an awful lot of things going on at the moment. Um, and of course, you're still working uh, with Miss Linnea Quigley. Um, so, yeah, fans of Creepazoids and fans of Linnea Quigley and, and fans of your work, is there is there somewhere that they can go to to find out more about what's going on uh, with yourself and with Rapid Heart at the moment? Yeah, well, RapidHeart.com, R-A-P-I-D-H-E-A-R-T.com mm-hmm. is my website. Um, I highly recommend people coming to that site and then uh, clicking on Photos. And then joining my Yahoo fan group because uh, I update that as often as possible. And it's not just about Rapid Heart films. I mean, Rapid Heart um, is a very uh, specific uh, type of uh, genre movie um, where maybe a lot of the fans of Creepazoids uh, might not necessarily appreciate my new aesthetic. Uh, but I'm. Uh, but uh, it's still. I, I talk about the old days. I talk. I have a, a radio show called uh, Rapid Heart Radio, and uh, I interviewed the three screen queens who I reunited after 25 years. Uh, have come back uh, awesome. 20 years, maybe. I think it's 20 years. I brought back Linnea quickly, Michelle Bauer, and uh, Bring Stevens in a film called 1313 Cougar Cult. And uh, it was a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, Linnea just was over here for the Monster Palooza convention, and she stayed with me. Um, <clears throat> she stayed with me, uh, and uh, we had a pajama party, and uh, uh, and uh, it was a girls' night, and we all uh, watched uh, Roller Boogie. Uh, that sounds like a setup for a movie, right there. It was fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, I just love. Uh, uh, I'm stuck in the seventies. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm stuck in the seventies. I, I can't shake it. Um, <laughs> Um, whenever I get together with Charlie Band, I uh, had lunch with him last week, and I'll be I'll be going to one of his sets next week. Um, we talk, I talk about the seventies. Now, Charlie is not the guy that looks back at the seventies with a lot of. He's always looking forward, and I am too. But it's but I'm a nostalgic guy. I mean, I got into this business because I love movies, not because I wanted to make money. You know, what I'm saying I wanted yeah. to make a living, but I wanted to. You know, I love movies and. And so when I look back as when I was a projectionist in the 1970s and I actually showed some of Charlie Band's movies um, in the theater, I, I, when I finally got to meet him and he said yes, um, it was an amazing thing. Same with Roger Corman. When I met him when I was 16 and then he hired me when I was 18, I had played his movies in my theater. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, you know, and I saw Roger again just recently. Um, um, uh, he and his lovely wife, uh, I met with him last month. And uh, he's still kicking and making things happen. It's an addiction, you know, yeah. it's an addiction. But there is a love for the films. But I, I've always loved the quirky, offbeat, crazy, insane, unpredictable little genre movies. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what I grew up on. And I love the classics. I love, you know, classic movies, black and white movies. Of course I love them. But I also like something that's a little different and a little more, uh, how should we say, a little bit more uh, crazy and insane yeah. and uh, uh, unusual. And you find a lot of that in... Uh, low budget genre movies, and you certainly, I certainly found them in the seventies, and I certainly made a few in the eighties. Um, and uh, you know, also, it's interesting. Just speaking of nostalgia, there's a lot of very famous directors now who are in there around your age, maybe even a little younger, and who have said to me, "Dave, you know, you you showed me my first set of tits." <laughs> And I said, really? I said, how's that? It goes, it, it, creepazoids, Rory Babes. I mean, yeah. when you look at the box cover, you know, our parents let us watch it at eight years old. Yeah, totally. And as long as it wasn't porn, they let us watch it. And I showed a lot of these. So I, there's a fondness for my movies with these directors. There's one very famous director now who's doing a lot of some of the most successful horror. I won't mention his name. But he's, been, <clears throat> he's very much into my 70s, my 80s work because... Great tits, great tits, and when you're eight years old, and you see your first set of tits, you fall in love, and you just can't shake it. You know, so there is yeah. a there is a, a real nostalgia on a number of levels for the for the film. Um, uh, and uh, I've I've jokingly said to a number of uh, straight friends of mine that I've I've probably been in the same room with more naked breasts than, than they've ever seen in their lives, and that we laugh, you know. Uh, but, um, you know, I always tried to make the movies, certainly the ones in the 80s, a little on the zany side, a little bit more of a pajama party movie, a more of a silly kind of movie, maybe a little campy, but also deliver the, 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 uh, the images that people were expecting, but also people maybe could not find in, in a mainstream movie. So... Um, I grew up in the genre. Uh, I grew up on genre movies. It is in my DNA, um, and um, um, and I still, on occasion, will look at a VHS tape and just take a deep breath and go, "Wow, there those were the good old days." And I, even some companies now are doing like little short run VHSs with their DVD yeah, releases yeah. just for the collectors, and it's it's kind of cool, you know. Um, although, how in the hell did we put that VHS in the machine? And it, remember all that clicking? Oh, yeah. Clank, and say, oh, oh. Adjusting the truck in. And, 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 and they survived is a miracle. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, that's absolutely fantastic. And, and I think at this point, all that remains for me is to, to thank you, for David Dakota, for, for sharing your thoughts on not only Creepazoids, but, but the fantastic world of VHS. You've been listening to an archive episode of the Adventures in VHS podcast. Remember, if you like what you hear in the show, why not treat yourself to a copy of the ebook for just £3.99 by visiting noelmeller.com. <laughs>